the main finding was that 70,000 international units per week may actually have been more detrimental for its intended purposes than, than actually uh, going with a lower dose. Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Welcome back or welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. This is Season 7, Episode Number 18. We're heading into the winter months and cold and flu are already on the rise, so I thought a perfect time to revisit a great conversation I had with vitamin D expert, Dr. Daniel Owens. In Season 3 of the podcast, all about vitamin D and its role in immune function as well as exercise-induced muscle damage and performance. Dan is a lecturer in cellular and molecular sport and exercise science at Liverpool John Moores University, a sport nutrition consultant to the Warrington Wolves Rugby League Club and former performance nutritionist for England Rugby Football Union. This is one of the most popular PNP performance nutrition podcast episodes. Lots of great insights here, so I hope you enjoy. And another great reason to share this episode with friends and colleagues we are just about to hit the 1 million downloads mark. We are looking good to crack that with the release of this episode. So massive, massive thank you to all the listeners over the last seven years and to all the experts who've taken the time to come on the podcast. All right, let's get rolling my conversation with Dr. Daniel Owens. Dan, appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, I really appreciate being uh, invited on as well. Terrific. Well, you know, can you start here maybe with giving listeners a quick whirlwind tour of how you became first interested in nutrition to your current role at the Liverpool John Moores? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I guess, I guess my interest in, in sports nutrition and, and sports science probably started in, uh, in high school. Um, I was really interested in biology at that time, uh, particularly human biology. And I was, I was a keen athlete myself. I was playing multiple sports, football, sorry, soccer, <laughs> rugby, uh, uh, and track running at the time. So, I mean, laterally for me, when I left high school, I thought, you know, I want to do something that combined all of this. And luckily in my city in Liverpool, at, at Liverpool John Moores University, um, we have a degree in sports science. And I thought, you know, that's that's perfect for me. So, uh, you know, as, as your listeners may know, at, at John Moores University, we have some, some really great uh, sports nutrition research practitioners, such as Graham Close, James Morton, uh, previously Don McLaren. And, and uh, program, yep. Yeah, I mean, th- these guys had a, had a really big impact on me through their teaching. You know, I, as soon as I started attending these lectures, I, you know, I thought I want to be in, in the position these guys are in, you know, somewhere down the line. Um, I guess I got a, a first taste for actual practical sports nutrition as part of the degree program. So I was placed with uh, the, the local boxing council, and that really just led on to more opportunities working with, with Graham and James uh, until I eventually did a PhD uh, with James and Graham in the area of vitamin D at John Moore's. And then I moved away to Paris for a couple of years, uh, worked more on fundamental muscle biology. And then about a year ago, rejoined John Moores University as a as a lecturer, uh, and I've I've just since been trying to mix basic science with applied science and nutrition, uh, and that's really led to this research interest of sort of translational physiology research, and you know that's that's brought me to to where I am today, I guess. 
Phenomenal. Well, listen, I'm looking forward to digging into your work on vitamin D and as well exercise-induced uh, muscle damage. So let's kick things off here with vitamin D. You know, in the last decade, the research on vitamin D and athletic performance has definitely exploded. Um, can you maybe give listeners a little historical perspective here and talk about you know, some of the advancements in technologies that's really influenced some of this understanding of what vitamin D really does in the body? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you're exactly right that the past the past decade decade or so is just seeing this this real boom in in research that's that's been taking place in this uh, you know focused on vitamin D. Um, really, we we can look back to the early 1920s for I guess where where this research interest in vitamin D started. Um, vitamin D was discovered by a quite an interesting character really in in nutritional biochemistry. Uh, a guy called Elmer McCollum, and he was really interested in, in in answering the question: How many dietary essentials are there, and um, what are they? So he was just trying to figure out what is it in the diet that we really need, you know, that we cannot synthesize ourselves. Mm-hmm. So he was, you know, one of the first guys looking into essentially what vitamins really are. Um, he was working at the time on a, a experimental rickets, um, which is a bone bone disease. Uh, results in abnormal bone mineral mineralization. So you've probably seen kids with uh, bowed legs, um, which is a characteristic yep. uh, phenotype of, of rickets. And what McCollum was doing uh, with with these animals that had experimentally induced rickets, he was looking. I mean, he tried over three hundred different diets to see, um, you know, wow. what diet and what it was in specific foods that that could prevent this this disease. Um, and he, and he pretty much figured out what vitamin D was by feeding cod liver oil that had been heated and aerated, um, so it destroyed all the vitamin A in that. Uh, he figured out that it could no longer cure night blindness, which is a, a consequence of vitamin A deficiency, but it did cure rickets. So um, at that point, he, 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 uh, he named it with the next available letter in the alphabet. <laughs> so they already had A, B, and C, so he called it vitamin D. And... Uh, Really, after that, you know, a generation of kids grew up uh, being supplemented with with cod liver oil, and you know, the rickets epidemic that had gone before it was was virtually eradicated. So, I mean, since then, and since the identification of vitamin D, that's I guess when there was you know a steady increase in the interest in vitamin D. Now, we I guess if we kind of fast forward a little bit to where we are today, we yep. know we know so much more about what vitamin D is and. Um, what it does in the body. And 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 for me, there are, I guess, the two real interesting facts about vitamin D is that it's not really like a normal vitamin. It's it's much more similar to a steroid hormone and it acts in a similar way in the body. Um, And also the the predominant way by which we get vitamin D, despite the fact it was was, uh, identified through a a dietary supplement, we actually get it through a photosynthetic reaction in the skin. Uh, when it's exposed to ultraviolet V radiation or or the sunlight, um, and, and really through the development of of new technologies, we now know exactly how vitamin D gets um, synthesized in the body, how it gets converted to the active active metabolite. So, I mean, it, it's probably a good uh, time at this point to really give you a, a background as to what happens in the body when we get vitamin D, because I think it, I guess it sets up you know anything else we want to discuss. Um, so regardless of whether we get vitamin D from uh, the diet or whether it's produced in the skin, both forms of it are going to get pulled into the circulation. Uh, the first, it's first going to get sent to the liver where it gets converted to 
25-hydroxy vitamin D, um, which is also just shortened to 25-OHD. Uh, and it's this metabolite that we routinely measure as a marker of vitamin D status. So all the current guidelines are, are based on this metabolite. Um, currently, anything that's below 30 nanomoles per liter is considered to be deficient. And anything less than 50 is suggested to be inadequate. And anything above 50 is, is uh, sufficient. Um, so that 25-OHD is, is actually an inactive metabolite. It then gets transported to the kidneys uh, and other tissues that can express the appropriate machinery to convert it to the active metabolite, which is 125-dihydroxyvitamin D. Um, and it's this metabolite that can interact with the vitamin D receptor and actually regulate around 3% of all of our genes. Um, you know, and as I said earlier, the, the reason that we know all this cool stuff is really due to new technologies. You know, we can look at uh, multiple systems in the body. We can use uh, omics approaches, which allow us, you know, to take a, uh, an unbiased look at everything that's going on in the body. We can generate, you know, animal models with specific mutations, you know, you name it. So because of the technologies, the, the interest in the area has boomed, you know, and we've got we've got so much more knowledge now. But for me, the fact that we've learned so much more, I actually think now we realize how very little we know about vitamin D. So it's a it's common super, theme often, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a super cool area for me, um, simply because there's, there's such a, you know, a wide breadth of, of, uh, avenues, which we can explore. Um, yeah, so I, you know, that's that's a, about as brief as a background as I can give on. on oh, that's that's terrific, and definitely, you know, with vitamin D receptors on bone and immune cells, cardiovascular system, obviously skeletal muscle, which kicked a lot of this off. And I'll, yeah. I definitely want to circle back to kind of the testing, because you mentioned the one twenty five hydroxy. But before mm. we go there, maybe just to lay the lands for listeners of, you know, what are some keys that vitamin D vitamin D may be able to do to impact athletic performance? Yeah, I mean. There's a lot of research out there on this right now, and you know I can totally understand when people uh, come to me and you know say they're they're pretty confused about what the literature says around uh, vitamin D and athletic performance. Um, for me, there are a few key areas uh, the vitamin D can can certainly have an effect on that can affect athletic performance both directly and and indirectly. So I guess indirectly is is likely to be through suboptimal immune function. Um, as we know, vitamin D is a potent regulator of both the innate and acquired immune system. So work from uh, Professor Mike Gleason's lab in Loughborough and, and, and also from some other groups, they've shown that athletes and, and military personnel with vitamin D deficiency have um, an increased incidence of upper respiratory tract infections and a longer number of days with uh, those symptoms. Which if you, if you think about that from an athletic performance point of view, that means, you know, athletes are losing days of training and potentially days of competition. Um, I think what's interesting about this area is that um, the amount of circulating 25-OHD seems to be higher than what is considered to be sufficient by the current guidelines um, in order to optimize immune function. So it appears that the breakpoint for a reduction in infection risk is, is actually about 90 nanomoles per liter. So if we, think, if we think back to, you know, what the current guidelines are of, you know, above 50 nanomoles per liter, we're, we're quite a way off there. So, um, you know, that's really an interesting area. And, 
and certainly Mike Gleason uh, is, is the guy to to go and read up on if, if you're interested in that area. Um, the second key area that really is, is of particular interest to me and, and where my research interests lie is, is in skeletal muscle. Um, so we personally have performed uh, quite a few trials on, on vitamin D and, and skeletal muscle. And the one where we've, we've seen the most interesting effects was on a, a randomized controlled trial in which we took healthy individuals that had low 25 OHD, uh, less than 15 animal per liter, um, and we supplemented them with either vitamin D3 or a placebo for six weeks. Now, prior to and, and following that intervention, um, we experimentally induced muscle damage by a high volume of eccentric muscle contractions, and then we monitored the, the recovery of force amongst uh, some other markers of muscle damage. Mm-hmm. Um, and we found a significant improvement in force recovery in the group that were that were supplemented with vitamin D versus the placebo. So, you know, in keeping with this theme of translational physiology, we wanted to try and identify what was actually going on within the muscle that could potentially explain um, that, that benefit. So we, we took some muscle biopsies from, again, from vitamin D deficient individuals, uh, were able to isolate out muscle precursor cells, and were able to use them in, in vitro in, in Petri dishes in the lab. Um, to do some extra experiments on them and, and really allows us to to look at this in a little bit more detail. So we, we treated some cells with vitamin D and others without. Uh, we kind of mimicked a sort of a, a muscle damage in the dish and then we looked at how the muscle was able to regenerate itself. Um, so some of the key findings showed us that you know the cells weren't able to to move as quickly to the site of damage, to fuse together, um, and to essentially regenerate that area that was damaged um, with the cells that only had, um, uh, with, that didn't have vitamin D. So basically, vitamin D was able to improve some cellular mechanisms that, that are responsible for muscle regeneration, um, which, you know, for us is a, Amazing, is a yeah. really cool finding. And, and it's something that we, you know, we're trying to follow up and, and understand a lot more about at the moment. Um, the final area for me, I guess, where vitamin D could, could certainly have an effect is, is obviously um, with its effects on bone. So bone is obviously the, you know, the classical tissue through which uh, vitamin D seems to have an effect um, because vitamin D is a, is a potent regulator of, of calcium absorption and bone mineralization. So you know, if we think back to that early work from, from Elmer McCollum, you know, that's where we, we started to understand vitamin D and, and bone health. Now, bone is, is obviously a, a metabolically active tissue. It can remodel itself in, you know, in response to different stimuli. Um, and research has demonstrated that you know, vitamin D may be implicated in some, of, some aspects of this remodeling process. Um, unfortunately, observational studies kind of, they don't really affirm a proportionate susceptibility to bone loss if you've got low vitamin D. Uh, concentrations and we think the reason for that is because um, at least load-bearing exercise is a, is a positive osteogenic stimulus for bone so what that really means is that uh, if athletes are load-bearing they're likely going to have an improvement in their bone health regardless of whether they vit- whether the vitamin D is high or low um, to a certain extent if it's really low we still see uh, some some bone abnormalities um, however, one sort of caveat to that is that obviously there are a lot of athletes that aren't weight bearing, 
So, for example, jockeys or, I guess, you know, the likes of swimmers, guys who are spending a lot of time off their feet and not really doing load-bearing exercise, mm-hmm. we do still see that they have low, low bone mineral density when their vitamin D is low. So, for example, in jockeys, you know, who are falling off the horse, you know, all the time, we really uh, focus on these guys trying to improve their vitamin D because it could certainly lead to an increase in, in fracture risk and um, and bone breaks. So really to, to summarize that, the, the three key areas for me is probably immune function, skeletal muscle, repair and remodeling, and potentially bone health are the ones that have got the most evidence at the moment uh, for me. Yeah, definitely some pretty significant um, consequences if you're a jockey, as you mentioned, and you get kicked oh, yeah. off the horse. I mean, if you're, if uh, those if your status isn't so good, then that's definitely a pretty significant consequence. And and Dan, you know, how much do vitamin D levels vary between groups of non-supplemented athletes? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, generally speaking, if athletes aren't taking supplements or, or using some beds, they have the same risk as everyone else and between each other because it has very little to do with the diet, but a lot to do with the environment. With that being said, some of the work that came from our lab in, in sort of 2000, I think it was 2013, um, showed quite a large variation actually between cohorts of, of, of elite athletes. So uh, we looked at elite rugby players, uh, soccer players, and, and also jockeys, uh, and we saw a pretty big variation between these guys. And, and our explanation for that really was that there could be a number of explanations. One it could be uh, dietary differences between the between the cohorts. Uh, it could be sunlight exposure differences, although it's probably not likely because most of the measurements were made in the winter and all of our guys were based in the UK, so very similar sunlight exposure. Could be due to clothing. Again, if you you know if you're if you're fully clothed or if you're only sort of fifty percent, that's going to have um, an impact on how much sunlight your skin sees, um, and also lifestyle as well predominantly living indoors or training indoors. Um, and I guess really for us that that kind of has important ramifications for supplementation because it tells us that we can't really just assume that all athletes in the winter months have the same requirements for vitamin D. Um, so we've tried to kind of help out with that by producing a, a decision flow chart in one of our recent, uh, put, uh, recent reviews in uh, the Journal of Sports Medicine. And, uh, you know, that kind of helps practitioners and, um, you know, people working with professional athletes to try and make the right decision of whether they should or they shouldn't be supplementing with, uh, with vitamin D. Um, one area that I've that we've been working on and, and I guess I've not really talked about or we've we've not really published any data on yet is that and we find super interested in, in an area that we're going to follow up is that when we look back through our data, and we look at some athletes that have higher muscle mass, we tend to see that those guys also have higher serum 25 OHD levels in the winter, mm-hmm. um, despite the fact that all of these guys shouldn't, when we test them, be on any vitamin D or um, uh, using sunbeds. Yeah. Um, they, they tend to have this higher serum 25 OHD. And, you know, that's really brought around this idea that, well, perhaps actually muscle is a storage site for, for 25 OHD. Um, Interesting. And and there is actually some sort of um, more basic evidence that supports that. So uh, there's a paper that's been published which demonstrates actually that the 25-OHD that's bound to its binding protein 
can be taken up by muscle and actually stored bound to actin for, for a short length of time. Um, now, that's not been shown in humans just yet, but it, it really is interesting to think, okay, if 25-OHD can be taken up by muscle, how long, is it, how long can it be stored there for? Um, you know, how is it released again back into the circulation? Um, and, and what, you know, what implication does that have for our supplementation strategies? You know, if we're working with guys who, you know, maybe in a rugby team where we have some players who are 125 plus kilograms and some who are maybe in the 80s, you know, does that have an implication for how we approach um, supplementation? So, you know, clearly it is a it is quite a complex picture when it comes to um, variations in, in athlete vitamin D status. And, you know, I, I really do think that anyone who's working with large groups of professional athletes, it's 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 something that we really have to take into account. And hopefully our recent review can sort of maybe help uh, assist with the decision making process. Yeah, it's a fantastic resource. And definitely, as you mentioned, that decision making process being so uh, complicated because you know Dan, how does ethnicity impact vitamin D status? Obviously, you know, in working with Canada basketball, a large percentage of our players will often see um, you know levels that are persistently low. Um, you know, so how does how does ethnicity impact this whole story? This is this is a fascinating area of the whole vitamin D story. Um, the, the first thing to mention is that skin pigmentation is certainly a limiting factor for. Uh, dermal vitamin D synthesis. So we've known for a long time that dark-skinned athletes um, need longer in the sun to produce the same vitamin D as, as a lighter person, a lighter-skinned person would for a shorter amount of time. Um, and it's actually argued that light skin is a is a is an evolutionary adaptation to migration away from the equator. Yep. So that's, that's pretty interesting in itself. Um, Ethnicity does also seem to have another effect on the vitamin D endocrine system through um, population-wide genetic variations. So there's been a number of studies now that have, have kind of sought to identify whether differences in ethnic co cohorts uh, respond differently to di vitamin D supplementation because it seems that black and, and Hispanic men, for example, um, have a higher risk of osteoporosis and, and fractures, but they actually have lower um, a lower 25 OHD um, uh, than Caucasians. So one area that's kind of been explored to try and account for this is genetic variations um, in vitamin D transport system and vitamin D metabolism. So, I mean, just to give, a, I guess, a little bit of background, vitamin D or 25 OHD, when it's circulating in the blood, um, about 85 to 95% of that is, is bound to the vitamin D binding protein. And only about 10 to 15% maximum circulates as uh, bioavailable um, or, or free. Um, and what's been suggested is actually that due to genetic variations in the vitamin D binding protein, we may actually see variations in the free fraction or the bioavailable fraction, meaning that despite the fact that uh, black individuals have lower 25 OHD, they may actually have higher amounts of the bioavailable fraction. So this has kind of brought about this idea. Well, you know, are we are, should we be measuring more than just you know tw um, total twenty five OHD? Do we need to be start to be looking at um, you know at other things as well? So there are certainly ethnic differences be um, um, between 
populations of individuals that that do lead to differences in the vitamin D endocrine system. And again, it's something we don't know enough about yet. And for sure, it's going to have implications for the way that we supplement with vitamin D going forward in the future. And Dan, do you think we are measuring the right thing in terms of being able to measure both the 25 OHD and actually starting to measure the 125 as well in, in concert? Is that something clinicians should be considering to get that assessment of bioavailable D rather than just simply relying on serum D, which is most common practice? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, certainly we, what we're doing going forward is is suggesting that, you know, in addition to measuring total 25 OHD, that, you know, clinicians could move towards also measuring the bioavailable fraction for sure. Um, there are assays available out there for this. So one of the limiting factors in the past was that there wasn't really a, a commercially available way to, to measure that bioavailable fraction. Um, that, that is available now. We, you know, we've seen uh, a number of individuals and groups, uh, some select few teams, uh, sports teams are starting to move towards this as well. Um, and it's something that we are spending a lot of our time now thinking about and a lot of our research efforts are, are going into measuring both of these metabolites because we do think that there may be subtle differences that, that might be able to explain um, physiological outcomes better than just measuring 25, total 25 OHD on its own. Hey friends, Athlete Performance Nutrition will be starting a monthly webinar series in 2024 with experts in performance nutrition across all fields. If you want to stay in the loop on the expert lineup and when those webinar dates drop, please sign up at Athlete Performance Nutrition for our newsletter at athleteperformancenutrition.com. All right, let's get back to the conversation. You know, if we continue on this road talking professional sport, um, a lot of professional teams and elite teams have gotten into a practice, you know, in the last few years of megadosing vitamin D. You know, taking 50,000, 70,000 IU, you know, mm. one day a week as sort of a time efficient strategy. Sometimes if athletes aren't going to be as, um, um, you know, comprehensive in taking their supplements daily, it's an easier strategy to do that. So you've written a whole paper on this topic, obviously. You know, can you walk listeners through some of the potential consequences of taking, you know, one large bolus of vitamin D? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, what, what you just described was actually kind of, um, the reason that, that got us to think about this and to, to do a study on this is that in our applied experience, working with clubs and you know working alongside practitioners from other clubs, we we saw that it was quite common that people were um, dishing out the whole week's worth of vitamin D in in one dose. Um, you know, quite commonly, as as you suggest, we've seen you know fifty to a hundred thousand international units given given at once. Um, which is which is a really really high dose of, of vitamin D, for sure. um, and if we think that the RDA for vitamin D, even though it might be a bit low, it, it's it's eight hundred international units. So if we're given a hundred thousand in a day, just to give you know listeners a bit of uh, uh, some reference, it's a super physiological uh, dose there, right? It's massive. It, it's massive, and it's not just really in um, professional sport where we see that. You know, the, there are medical reports out there published where you know you see. Uh, 100,000 international unit injections um, to try and deal with things like rickets or, or osteoporosis. Um, wow. And, you know, the, the, the key thing here, I guess, um, is that, well, what we wanted to do was, was look at this from, a, from a, a professional athlete standpoint. So 
we were working with at the time um, myself, Graham, and, and a guy called Warren Bradley, who's a who's a, a sports nutrition practitioner. We were looking um, at the time at, at two different dosing strategies in forty six um, elite rugby players. So one strategy was thirty five thousand inter- international units per week, and one was seventy five thousand international units per week for twelve weeks. And what we wanted to do was actually go, okay, let's look at all of the, vit- or at least all of the vitamin D metabolites that we can, we can actually measure at the moment. So that included total 25 OHD, uh, 125 OHD, the, the, the bioactive metabolite. We also looked at the product of um, 25 OHD catabolism, which is 24, 25 OHD. And we looked at this across, across this time course of, of 12 weeks. Now, what we found was, you know, we think was was really interesting. Um, the main finding was that 70,000 international units per week may actually have been more detrimental for its intended purposes than, than actually um, uh, going with a lower dose. And the reason for that is because we saw an increase in 24, 25 OHD production. So we saw an increase in the catabolism of vitamin D. Now, not only did we see that breakdown in vitamin D, we also saw that if we if we quickly took athletes off that supplementation, the 24-25 OHD remained elevated, whereas the 125 OHD and the 25 OHD started to come down. So in the face of, of um, declining concentrations of the actual active metabolites, we're seeing an increase in the, in the catabolo- catabolic metabolite, which could actually have um, negative consequences for vitamin D signaling in, in all of the tissues that, that vitamin D um, exerts its effects. So we showed two things really, which was that high-dose supplementation um, is, is really not the best way to go about supplementing athletes with, uh, with vitamin D. And the second thing is that if you rapidly take them off that high dose, it could have uh, even worse consequences. So what the data really imply is that lower doses of vitamin D ingested frequently, so on a, on a daily basis, um, and a gradual withdrawal from supplementation as we get into sort of the sunnier months when we don't need vitamin D is probably the best way that we need to, to go about supplementation. Yeah, I mean, that's a really, really important finding you guys had there. I mean, even last year I was at a um, strength and conditioning conference and one of the speakers was actually advocating for using these sort of big doses without considering some of the things that you're mentioning here. So yeah, definitely um, pretty important stuff and a really important one for practitioners to make sure they're double checking. I know a lot of athletes will just take that vitamin D bottle and yeah. sort of go for it, you know? That's that's for sure. I, I think, you know, regulating that, I mean, from a practical nutrition perspective, having the vitamin D just out on a table is probably not the best thing to do with athletes because, you know, as, as, as I guess everyone listening knows, um, you know, if athletes think something's good, they think more of it is better. Oh, so sure. if vitamin D is left around and they're taking big high doses, it's, it's probably not having the intended effects that you want. Um, and there is always a risk of toxicity if, if, it's a, if it's a chronic intake of really high vitamin D. Yeah, great, great point. And Dan, I want to kind of segue this conversation on vitamin D to your recent work around exercise-induced muscle damage now. And you know, of course, a lot of nutrients and functional foods have been looked at for their potential to ameliorate things like exercise, induce muscle damage, accelerate recovery, um, 
But of course, there's a trade-off, right, between recovery and adaptation, which you guys highlight very well. And mm -hmm. very few studies have actually examined that sort of balance um, mm -hmm. between the right amount, you know, that adequate stress to trigger adaptation and the need to avoid, um, mm -hmm. you know, adding unnecessary supplementation on the back end. Can you maybe set the stage here for listeners on your paper and highlight some of the markers of exercise-induced muscle damage? Yeah, I mean, the, the classic, I mean, the hallmark of, of EIMD is is a is a loss of force generating capacity. So if you're going to measure anything as a marker of exercise induced muscle damage, it, it it should be a loss of force, a loss of function. Um, alongside that, we also see big increases in soreness, um, a disturbed perception of limb position as well can, can also occur, and these markers tend to last from anywhere between a couple of days up to you know 14 days after the event so usually most of the markers peak at around two days after um a damaging event and you know everyone knows when they've done something unfamiliar um you know 48 hours after you've got that real tender muscle um and that's and you know that's a that's classic exercise induced muscle damage for sure um the mechanisms that underlie this are typically some disruption of the the sort of muscle machinery that allows muscle to contract and also a bit of damage to the muscle membrane. Um, and because of that, we see increases in intracellular calcium, potentially increases in reactive oxygen species. Um, that all gets cleared out. The cell debris gets cleared out by the immune system and then the muscle gets repaired and remodeled um, intrinsically and also uh, through a, a contribution of the muscle stem cells too. So that's kind of the, the whole process in a nutshell, I guess. Excellent. And, you know, let's talk polyphenols here for a minute. Fruits and vegetables, obviously rich in polyphenols. Many mm -hmm. possess the ability to inhibit, you know, COX enzymes to a mm -hmm. similar magnitude as, as things like NSAIDs or over-the-counter um, mm -hmm. anti-inflammatory. So can you start the conversation here with maybe a little discussion on cherry juice and, and what phase it might support and how? Yeah, so, I mean, ch cherry juice is obviously... Um, polyphenol rich um, uh, functional food as it were which essentially means that it, it's got some ability to have a positive uh, physiological effect and maybe preserve health or, or, or prevent disease to an extent um, the mechanism by which that might have a positive effect is, is really still being researched but i think it's probably unlikely that it has any direct antioxidant activities i don't think it can probably act as a you know, as a scavenger of free radicals or anything like that. Um, it's probably more likely that whatever's in cherry juice has uh, some ability, first of all, to ameliorate um, some signs of muscle soreness. There have been some studies that have shown that. But it's mm -hmm. probably likely that the polyphenols or uh, the active metabolites within cherry juice can um, act as signaling molecules that stimulate adaptation. Um, and, and you're right in saying that, you know, with all of these things, if we if we overdo it, if we have too much of them um, in a phase of exercise where we have only a sort of modest um, stimulus, it may be that they dampen that stimulus a little bit. So what we've kind of, um, our theoretical framework, I guess, that you could say in one of our recent papers was that, you know, the exercise stimulus is kind of like um, a bell-shaped curve or it's a, it's a hormetic effect, whereby up to a certain point, we have a gradually increasing exercise stress that results in a, in a positive response or an adaptation. Now, after that point, at the sort of curvature of the, of the bell shape, 
um, we start getting onto the descending limb of that um, positive adaptation and the exercise stress is, is a little bit too much. And you could consider that to be sort of um, excessive muscle damage with certain types of exercise. And what we've postulated is, is, is there's potentially that region whereby the exercise stimulus is, is a little bit too much in where we can have, uh, where we could utilize these um, functional foods to our benefit. Um, you know, what we've kind of suggested is that these these functional foods like cherry juice or, um, you know, other, other similar polyphenol uh, rich foods, if we include them in the diet, the worst case scenario is that we've included uh, important vital nutrients in the diet. Um, and the best case scenario is that it might exert a positive effect. So I think, you know, with these type of functional foods, we're, we, we can't really go too wrong here. Um, you know, advocating that athletes include them in the diet is is a good piece of advice anyway. For sure. Uh, and using them potentially to our advantage in, in periods where, you know, we've maybe gone quite heavy with the exercise stimulus, the exercise stress, or maybe there's a bit of muscle damage. You know, that could maybe alleviate some um, of the symptoms associated with exercise-induced muscle damage. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly as it relates to, as you mentioned, just eating real food, of adding those polyphenol-rich foods in the diet, um, mm. sort of a can't-lose situation there. And, you know, Dan, what about omega-3? You know, the evidence on its effects from muscle function, oxidative stress, inflammation, I know some folks think there's a lot of potential benefit. Others view the, you know, the, the, the evidence base as being um, maybe maybe not showing as much support. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, just to, I guess, set the tone a little bit, you know, po polyunsaturated fats like um, omega-3, uh, you know, they, they are important for our health in, in general. Um, we get them from foods like nuts, mackerel, tuna, um, and they are the type of fats that we do actually want to be including in the diet. So, in any case, it's something that we we do naturally want to be having in the diet. Uh, in terms of its, uh, in terms of the effects on exercise-induced muscle damage in, in that area, you know there are a few studies that have looked at potential supplementation um, and whether it could alleviate some or you know the majority of exercise-induced muscle damage markers. Um, and in general, the the consensus is that for, for EIMD, there may be some benefits. Um, of supplementing with um, omega-3. I guess probably the most extensive study done on this was, was by Chris McGlory, who is at uh, McMaster University. Um, previously, nice. Yeah, well, he's English. So oh, is he? <laughs> In Canada, there you go. <laughs> and, and I will also mention, uh, you know, a, a previous John Moores University student as well. So, Fantastic. you know, super proud of, of, of the guys that have come from, from our lab. But, you know, Chris did a, a nice study where he showed that um, a minimum of five grams per day of fish oil, which equated to around about 3.5 grams of EPA, and I think it was almost a milligram of DHA, um, was necessary to, to, to actually permit any detectable increases in um, um, uh, omega-3 within the muscle. So, um, you know, collectively, I would say that the studies do are, are suggestive that there could be a positive effect. We're certainly... Um, not there yet. If, if you know, to say that it certainly does have an influence on exercise-induced muscle damage, we definitely need to be having a higher dose than you would probably get just from just from the diet. Um, and you know, there are guys such as as, as Ollie Whitard in in um, in Sterling who are doing a lot of work around 
um, the positive health benefits of, of omega-3 um, fish oil. So, you know, I'm sure this area is going to continue to grow. And, and, you know, they're the guys that really are, who are to follow to, to stay on top of this research. And what about younger athletes, Dan? I know a lot of our young basketball players, you know, mm-hmm. young athletes in general, I mean, we could probably, probably pretty much say is, you know, the diet in terms of things like shellfish or fish is typically going to be pretty low, oftentimes non-existent. Um, yeah. So do you feel that's a place where supplementation is likely a, a good spot to be adding some of these things in that athletes, unfortunately, aren't going to be getting necessarily as much from a food first approach? Yeah, potentially. I mean, the, the place that we always start with this is if athletes aren't getting much in, we, we are we do try and introduce it into the diet first and educate around this and for sure and, and use practical ways, I guess, to to improve to improve their uptake just from the diet. Um, in terms of supplementation, yeah, for sure. You know, we we fish oil supplementation is one that if they're not getting enough through the diet, we can you know follow that. Um, I don't know if you've seen Graham Close's supplementation um, decision tree, you know, whether you should supplement or not. But, you know, if we do get through all of those uh, questions saying, you know, can we get enough in the diet? Okay, well, the athlete isn't. Can we get a batch tested version? Yes. Okay. If we can work our way through that, then yes, it it certainly could be something that we could use with younger athletes. Um, In terms of the dosing, though, you know, I'm not sure there's any research to say whether um, doses need to be altered based on on age for the younger guys mm-hmm. um so you know i would kind of say stay conservative with it just to be uh, certainly just to be safe but um you know for me the way i always try and approach these things is just improvement of education um and actually trying to increase dietary uptake first yeah, terrific absolutely it's a great uh, first place to start as always setting that foundation with the diet for sure and that sort of dovetails here into my next one around vitamin c and vitamin e um, two essential nutrients, obviously um, commonly known for a lot of athletes, especially even younger athletes. How do they stack up in terms of exercise-induced muscle damage? Yeah, so again, you know, um, an area that's been pretty extensively researched over over time. Uh, what I will say is that it's it's an area that, um, you know, my colleague and mentor, Graham Close, has done a lot of work on. Also, James Cobley, also, they, you know, both of those guys have done heaps of work on this um, and wrote really good, uh, insightful opinion pieces on this. So uh, certainly if, if listeners are interested, you know, go go to those guys and find their research because it's, you know, it's really interesting stuff around some C&E. Um, what I will say is that, you know, one of the things that came out around vitamin C&E was actually that... Um, if we're if we're supplementing with high doses of vitamin C and E, it may actually have um, a negative effect on uh, on muscle function and on some aspects of um, muscle remodeling as well. Um, I'm, to be honest with you, I'm not sure really where we what we think about that anymore. That old school opinion that you know um, they're acting as as, as uh, oxidant scavengers as um, um, antioxidants as it were yeah and and the reason for that is really because we're we don't really believe that these uh, vitamin c and e can uh, accumulate in a sufficient uh, amount at the site of free radical production so that's really important because a lot of the the, the reactive oxygen species that are thought to cause some a- aspects of, of macromolecular damage um they're only existing for a very short time and, and damaging things that are in a very close pro- proximity. 
So in order for vitamin C or E to actually have any effect, they'd need to accumulate right near the site at where the free radicals were being produced. And we don't really think that that's possible, theoretically anyway. Um, what we think is probably a more likely scenario is that if they are going to have any positive effect, it's probably going to be through acting as signaling molecules. Um, so, you know, whether they have a positive or, or a negative effect, you know, I guess that remains open. But, you know, as you said, these are, are vital nutrients that we need to be getting through the diet. So, you know, no one should be avoiding these things. Um, what I would say is that taking sort of mega doses of vitamin C and E is probably not going to be useful either. So yeah, it's definitely a common one along with the D that I would see in whether it's personal trainers, uh, certain athletes, or even recreational athletes. If you have the vitamin C, the vitamin E, the vitamin D tend to be the ones that people will go to increasing amounts. So really great uh, insights to uh, on that front. Absolutely. And, and, and I think, you know, again, the key message here is that you know, it, we've got to start with the diet. You know, we really have to get a really varied, balanced diet that are, that's rich in vitamin C, rich in vitamin E, um, rich in all of the nutrients that are are common within uh, the diet. Obviously, vitamin D isn't, um, but we really have to start there before we start thinking about anything else. And you know, nine times out of ten, if we if we nail that, then we're pretty much going to um, be spot on with with uh, with our vitamins anyway. So, you know, I always say start there and then work upwards. And then if we see that, okay, there's a deficiency, maybe we need a little bit more, then we can start to think about supplementation and, and sports nutrition and, and all the rest of it. Um, but for now, I think that, you know, for vitamin C and E, we should just be trying to get most of that through through the diet. A hundred percent. Very well said, Dan. And I definitely want to respect your time here. So I'll, uh, before we wrap things up, last couple of questions here for you. Yep. Uh, what do you think the evolution of research with vitamin D and athletic performance is looking like in the next five or 10 years? So at least from our lab, we're, we're going down the avenue of, of trying to identify uh, whether bioavailable vitamin D is a better marker of vitamin D status. We're also going to try and answer the question of, well, if, if that is the case, can we potentially increase just the bioavailable fraction as opposed to the, the total fraction? Um, so, you know, from a supplementation point of view, that's where we're going. From a mechanistic point of view, we're, we're kind of exploring a number of different avenues. We're, we're trying to really identify how vitamin D might exert positive, effect, positive effects within muscle. Um, we're also quite interested in uh, vitamin D and its potential to interact with uh, mitochondria as well. So, you know, for us, that, that's the next five to 10 years sewn up right there because that's going to take a lot of our time. Um, and that's what kind, of, kind of what we're working on. Um, I know that some of the labs are looking at um, v vitamin D and its, and its potential um, for dysregulation in, in obesity uh, and certain, certain aspects like that as well. So for, for me, I think it's all going to be around how we kind of personalize vitamin D supplementation um, taking into account these genetic factors we talked about earlier, taking into account population-wide ethnic differences, um, and really having, a, I guess, a, a bit more of a personalized approach to it. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, listen, Dan, I really appreciate you carving out the time today. Where can people stay connected with you and keep up with your phenomenal research? Um, so Twitter is a, you know, is, is where I'm pretty active on Twitter. So, uh, 
My Twitter handle is Dan underscore Owe, so that's O-W-I-E. Um, I'm on LinkedIn as well. I'm also on ResearchGate. So, you know, if you just type my name in there, you should be able to find, uh, should be able to find me and anything related to vitamin D, you'll know it's me. So, uh, you know, if you want to send me any questions, you can contact me on any of those platforms. Always happy to talk about the work we're doing. Um, and also happy, you know, to chat about applied work as well, if, if anyone wants to get in touch. So, um, yeah. Thanks for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. As always, appreciate you taking the time. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. It's a big help to the show and keeps us attracting the best of the best in performance nutrition. All right, see you next time. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.